for joining me for the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howie Jacobson. Hey, Drina's back. One of the OGs of the vegan cookbook movement, Drina Burton, who was a guest on the show many, many years ago, is back. She's got a new cookbook. And I, I saw it online. I'm like, I really want that. I want to cook from it. I want to explore it. And what's the best way to do that is to reach out to Drina and say, hey, you want to be on the show? And then, of course, I had an obligation to go through it and make some of the recipes which was really fun and delicious. So when I started this podcast, it was almost all like cookbook authors because those were the people that I was meeting and the celebrities and the stars. And as you know, if you've been following the show for these many years, I've branched out into you know, all aspects of plant-based nutrition, plant-based living, healthy lifestyle, environment, sociology, behaviorism. It's gone all over the place. Basically, you know, everybody I can think of that I want to talk to, I will try to find a reason to get them on the show. But it's nice to return to the roots every so often. There's still some cookbook authors that I just love to connect with. You know, I had uh, Nava Atlas on the show recently. Uh, whenever Kathy Hester comes out with something new or, uh, you know, the Campbells, Kim Campbell from Plant Pure. And Drina is another one. She Her cookbooks were kind of my guide when I was starting out both eating vegan and healthy and also trying to proselytize the uh, deliciousness to family, friends, and neighbors. So um, here we go. Without further ado, Drina Burden, welcome back to the Plant Yourself podcast. So happy to see you again. Thanks, Howie. Yeah, as you said, it's been it's been a bunch of years, five or six since you, <laughs> since you were on. You been up to anything since then? Yeah, nothing. <laughs> Just another few books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, no more kids. <laughs> Just books. <laughs> so um, I'm trying to remember. I think we did. We talk about um, the, the the family's cookbook last. I believe that is the last time I spoke with you. And then I did two books in collaboration with Dr. Bernard in between that book and this new book. But I think that was when we chatted. Yeah. Okay. So you mentioned in the um, introduction to your new book, which is Drina's Kind Kitchen, that the uh, the family's book, let me see what it says exactly. Um, I got it. I got it. Um, Plant Powered Families was the first cookbook uh, with oil free. Right. So I found myself like because I, you know, I've been a fan of yours from way back when you were one of the the only vegan cookbook authors. Mm. Like your book started colonizing my shelf and moving like Moosewood Mm. and Laurel's Kitchen and sort of my, you know, um, the Tastahara bread book. Like, oh, like, oh, there's vegan stuff. Yeah. And your books have, have evolved. And I guess you have evolved mm-hmm. over the past, was it 20, 25 years you've been doing this now? Yeah, yeah. Writing cookbooks for over 20 years. Yeah, definitely evolved. Yeah. Yeah. So take us through, like, where, what, what, what's the arc been like? Yeah. So interesting, right, that you mentioned this, because when I first, my first book, The Everyday Vegan, that came out in 2001, um, that was a very healthy book back in the day, right? Considering um, we didn't know much about plant-based at the time. It was fairly new, but I wrote that book with the intention of offering recipes um, partly to my um, 
parents-in-law because my husband's father had had a heart attack um, a couple of years before that. And his doctor recommended Dr. Dean Ornish's program for reversing heart disease, which was largely unheard of. We um, are from Newfoundland and we were in a small town. And so not only was it, you know, over 20 years ago and not much was known about plant-based, we were also in a very remote small area that, you know, they would have caught on to the whole notion a little bit later than, you know, in larger centers. So it was rather a radical idea at the time. And um, his parents came to us when we had already been eating vegan for few years then and said, you know, how do we do this? So I had always enjoyed scratching down recipes and kind of muddling my own way through the kitchen and thought, okay, this is the time to put pen to paper and create some recipes. So that book was actually fairly healthy. And the oil that was in it was quite minimal because I knew they needed a very low fat diet. Um, and almost no fat really, right? Like low to no fat for disease reversal. It's very, very low. And so I'd make muffins with say like a tablespoon of oil or something like that. So that was a fairly healthy cookbook. And when vegans started to grow at that time, it was still very, very early. uh, There was much more focus on trying to create everything to be as indulgent as possible, right? And to mimic everything that was out there that we wanted to show that, hey, we can have this and it's still vegan and let's show them how to make the most delicious desserts and, you know, really luxurious food. And so my work, I think, was really um, sort of in the shadows at the time because it wasn't in that framework of being just a little bit richer and indulgent. And then my next book, Viva Vegan, came out um, after the our first daughter was born. I then worked on the second book, which I felt like I was growing in my own repertoire of ingredients in terms of how many different grains I was using and learning about new beans and just kind of digestibility of foods. And so in addition to the recipes and that, I included information about um, introducing food to babies and toddlers on a vegan diet. And it was a very Um, non-allergenic or low allergenic kind of basis and so that was that book and then my third book came out eat drink vegan i think you knew that book yeah 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 but your second book like at that point were you now thinking of yourself like a professional cookbook author not really no i still very much was you know in my mom mode right like that was first and foremost in my mind mom mode and Really, I was making very little money with my books um, and social media was not on the scene. Um, Blogging wasn't even blogging. Mm. I remember I started my first blog, which was Blogspot. I don't know if you remember that kind of framework. I do. I do. And so I remember starting a blog on Blogspot in 2005, and that was just after Viva Vegan came out. So I, you know, I was, I guess, considered a professional cookbook author, but in my world, I was just kind of, you know, doing a hobby thing, right? Uh Um, Yeah. And I almost stopped after eat, drink and be vegan. I almost stopped. I'm grateful I didn't, (laughs) but it was a lot, a lot of work. And I was really like, it was not, um, I wasn't, didn't feel like I was connecting with people either because 
again, it was not on social media and there weren't a lot of opportunities to meet and greet people and get out in the world. Um, festivals were like once a year, right? A veg festival. And in terms of income, it, I was really not making very much, like I said. So, but I continued on with um, then let them eat vegan or eat, drink, and be vegan was kind of like a, a little more celebratory It include like some more party fair and a little more um, different cuisines and a whole chapter on hummus, which people really loved. And then let them eat vegan. I, I love the recipes in that book, but that book doesn't really showcase how beautiful those recipes are. It wasn't produced the best, um, the publisher I had at the time, but lots of depth of flavor and different um, cuisines again, and, and really kind of exciting dishes in that book and a lot of gluten-free options for people. And then I moved into oil-free cooking with plant part families. And I did a couple of eBooks as well. And then two books with Dr. Bernard, the cheese trap and the diabetes reversal cookbook, but my own solo project. Um, that was my first oil free book was plant power family. So I kind of like you, you know, grew with it, learned from some of the experts in the field, the doctors, the leaders, and realized that, you know, oil for a very long time, we were told it was not just okay, but very, very necessary, right. To, cook with oil or add it to our foods. Um, I used to use it in my kids' food a lot. And <laughs> they always had oil-stained shirts, right? Because yeah. <laughs> when you get oil on clothes, it's very hard to get it out. Um, and then, uh, you know, just kind of, I, I kind of went back to my roots, I guess I'd say, with plant part families and very wholesome foods. But along the way, like with three kids, I'm wanting to just make cooking, um, you know, very accessible, not just for me, but everyone, I really learned how to streamline things and cut out certain steps, make the processes a little bit easier and really deliver recipes for people that could be done, you know, as efficiently as possible, right? Either using the food processor, getting everything in that or doing everything in a casserole dish, kind of like cutting out steps for people. And I continue in that, in that theme with Drina's Kind Kitchen. Mm. So when, when did you like turn pro in your mind? <laughs> Probably with plant Power families, truly. So it's um, like 2015. So like yeah. 15, 15 years after you started, yeah. you're like, okay, this is a thing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I caught on. <laughs> well, I moved publishers with plant Power families and the first publish, um, my first three books, I was with a Canadian publisher and I liked working with them. Um, but I felt like uh, it was time to kind of it kind of explore my options. And I had heard some good things about this other publisher that I moved to with Let's Meet Vegan. I did not have a great experience and then went with Ben Bella for um, Plant Power Families. They also did the China study and have absolutely had the greatest experience with them. And, you know, it's more about than, you know, for authors, it's a whole lot more than your royalties. I mean, yes, that's important. You need to earn a good living for what you're doing. Uh, but, um, to, you know, books don't really sustain people in terms of income anyhow, right? Unless you have a really, really huge selling books, they're kind of a limb of your work, right? Mm. You, you do other things to earn revenue around the book. So the, 
for authors, it's really important that you open that book and just really love how it came together. And with Plant Power Families, that's how I felt. I just like, oh, they did a beautiful job. Everything's photographed. It's it's aesthetically pleasing and it connected with people. And that was important to me. So that's, I think, when it, it felt different. Mm. Yeah. So when you started writing, it sounds like you were kind of writing in a vacuum. Like yes. you were putting this stuff out there and you weren't, there was no social media. You weren't clear how much was selling, like what the impact was. What, what was the impact of, of social media of, on, on the evolution of your work? Mm, such such a good point. Yes, I feel like uh, it was that connection with people. And I mean, you know, social media is, has all its pros and, and cons, right? But the huge pro is knowing that you are connecting and helping people on their journeys. And like, I'd hear from people and some days I might have a bad day and put a post up and wow, have this outpouring of support. And I thought, wow, like this is significant. So as much as we can be you know, too pulled into social media at times and be distracted by it. Uh, it certainly has allowed us to um, bring support to one another when we're in these areas of life that are not the norm, right? And we're working in lifestyles or trying to change our habits and and things like that. That support's really important. Yeah, it seems like it, it allowed this sub, you know, this subculture among many others to flourish, to allow the, the, all the weirdos to find each other. You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it seems like, you know, in the nineties in the and earlier, if you wrote a cookbook, you were hoping it was going to get picked up, you know, New York times, Bon Appetit was going to do a, a yeah. spread on you. Like there was a very, um, there was a lot of gates and filters to be, have an important cookbook. And now all of a sudden you have an important cookbook, but it's only important to 1% of the population and no major news outlet would would take the space to cover that, mm-hmm. and so now all of a sudden you have this, you have you have a niche. I'm I'm curious what were the kinds of feedback and messages that you got as you as you entered you know I guess it was like you know Facebook and the blogosphere mm-hmm. at first that told you that your work was important in the world. Uh- messages that I still get to this day where people say, you know, your book was the first book that I turned to that I found when I began this journey. And I keep coming back to your book or something like that. Or I have so many bookmark pages or my pages are falling out of that book. I use the recipes every week. Like that kind of thing is so meaningful when you know you're part of that person's, you know, daily um, journey to eat healthier and eat more compassionately. And uh, it when I hear those things, I get them by email or someone sends me the photos of the recipes they've made. Like it just warms my heart entirely. I just, it's the best feeling. (laughs) Mm. I love it so, so much. And you're right. Like years ago, it was all about getting some media attention and it's not that way anymore. You know, you can get TV spots, um, but it's not social media is is where everything really um, circulates and bubbles up and people talk. I mean, Mm. a few good media hits are good too, but (laughs) Right. We don't turn them down. No, indeed. So I think I met you in the fall of 2013 at the Vita Vegan Con Festival in Mm -hmm. Portland, Oregon. And I didn't realize there were things like that until then. But, you know, there was you. I I think I met Miyoko and Uh uh, a whole bunch of other, you know, like sort of icons, like people who had, you know, I just wanted you to like sign my books and stuff. Uh Um, 
and I'm curious, like, at what point did you start meeting other cookbook authors, other sort of, you know, culinary luminaries of the plant-based and vegan movement? I would say that, that was one of my first as well. Um, that was a big one for me. And wow, Miyoko's done so much since then, right? Like, <laughs> it's amazing when you think about what's happened in the last 10 years or so. Um, yeah, I think it's been at that festival. And then I went to Summerfest. Um mm which is quite a haul for me uh, to go to. It was quite a trip uh, to get there. Um, and that's where I met a lot of big names in the industry as well. I met Dr. Barnard at Whole Foods here in Vancouver once. He was doing a talk and I said to my family, I want to go meet him um, because he had offered uh, a forward for Eat, Drink and Be Vegan. And I was like, we got to get out there. And I met him for the first time there. But Vita Vegan Con and Summerfest and then that, actually those were the biggest uh, I, it's been the U.S. festivals that had the biggest names, um, uh -huh. although I, I'm hoping I think I'm doing one here in November and there's going to be some, you know, big ritual will be there. So hopefully we'll get to meet him. Mm, yeah. yeah. So how how does I'm curious, like when you started writing, you, you were really not in a conversation with anyone. You were just uh -huh. like, I've gotten. But now. Like, and when you started writing cookbooks, there were almost no vegan cookbooks. Like whatever you did was going to add to the genre. Mm -hmm. But now, of course, we have this incredible explosion. I'm wondering, do you think, you know, I'm friends with Kathy Hester, who lives, you know, not too far from me. And she's like thinking like, what's the next cookbook? Like, you don't want to do a cookbook that someone else has done. And there's so mm -hmm. much out there. How do you think about like, so your latest one, The Kind Kitchen, it's pretty eclectic. It's not like you know, it has a particular focus. So how do you decide, like, this is what I have to add to the conversation right now? Mm. Well, with, um, you know, with Plant Power Families, I really felt like with that book in particular, it was time, there was nothing on the market for families. There was nothing to talk about, like raising children and picky eaters and school parties and, uh, you know, those sort of complexities of having little children that feel very overwhelming in the moment, right, when they're little and so that one, I really felt like this huge urge, like there was something inside me saying this book needs to be on the market. And with Kind Kitchen, I really just felt like I wanted to share more of my recipes and felt like I had this, you know, community that were asking for more of my recipes. And with this book, I wanted to show how to make it even simpler and to really meet people where they are, because my perspective or my approach in the community has always been you know, a place of compassion and not judgment and not shame, rather just kind of, you know, here we are, try to welcome you into my space or into mm -hmm. this space of eating and show you that it's very doable and you can take it in steps. So that's kind of where I've always been in my space in, in like, for instance, my Facebook page, my group, I have a plant part families group. It's always from that perspective of, hey, welcome. <laughs> mm. Let's show you a few things. And so with Drina's Kind Kitchen, that's what I wanted to kind of the tone I wanted to bring to the book and uh, to show people that not only could you make these recipes and they're delicious and wholesome and they're oil free, but hey, I can also offer you nut free options for like a cheesecake or a queso and still oil free and nut free. And hey, I'm going to use ingredients in a real fun way so that they add texture and color. We're not hiding the veggies, but we're working them in an interesting way. So 
Um, that's, that's for me, I just felt like I had a whole new collection of recipes that I wanted to deliver really. Hmm. So without, without necessarily, it sounds like you weren't necessarily like sniffing out the market and seeing no. like, what's, what's the, what's the trend or what's the, the need. It was just sort of like, I'm going to like writing a novel, like yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to express myself here. And if, if, if that's what people want, then that, then I'm going to be authentic in it. That's ex- yes, yes, yes. I, I've never been that strategic. <laughs> Perhaps <laughs> I should have been, but it's never been because I develop recipes very um, organically. Like I want to, I'm in the kitchen. I'm like, Oh, I want to, I have this idea. I want to work on it. And then it becomes a recipe. And then I build on that. And so usually I'm building a collection of different types of recipes rather than saying, I want to do this book and I'm going to focus on what needs to be done for that book. I do have a couple of ideas in mind for like a possible book in the future, but we'll see, you know, it's just Mm. ideas that are bubbling. Uh One of the things that occurs to me is like, when you talked about like coming out with these recipes that are sort of, you know, kind and, and non-judgmental and welcoming of anyone in the community, like the front lines of veganism have really shifted. Mm from you know like where would people see vegans they would see them like protesting Mm -hmm. (laughs) and now now the vegans they see are offering them delicious food (laughs) (laughs) seems like a smarter strategy right right well yeah i mean i've always said if the food is served and it's delicious and satisfying no one's ever going to say what's not in it right they're not asking what's not in it um it's just delicious food and i agree the whole there's been a very big shift in perception and it was due you know we weren't all living that way i mean i remember when my first book came out and uh we were doing a cooking seg i was doing a cooking segment and we were flown to toronto at the time that was a big deal right now now everything's zoom it's great i did some cooking segments one in la one in chicago it was all from my kitchen it was fabulous um but the cab driver was talking to us and he was saying he was vegetarian i was like oh cool i said you know we're actually vegan do you know what that is and he's like oh yeah that's very radical uh-huh. <laughs> and I'm sitting in the back seat with a, my husband and our six month old baby looking just as, you know, every day as everybody else, which is partly why we called the book there, you know, the everyday vegan, because I felt I was fairly, you know, every day, but that was the perception for sure. And it's shifted now. It's like, you wouldn't know who's vegan, everyone, you know, all walks of life. Mm. Are there so given all the cookbooks out there and all the cookbook authors and all the connections, are there like do you like have other cookbooks? Do you cook from them? Do you use them for inspiration? Or are you like, I don't want to mess my mind up? What? The latter. The latter. Yeah. I I I'm always impressed by other people's work and I love to look at it for like a you know, a beautiful work of art, right? Like, wow, look at this, what they've done, but I don't delve into recipes too much or even want to like get my mind around them because it's so hard to craft out your own piece of work and know that it's, it's yours. You know what I mean? I mean, there's like thousands of chocolate chip cookie recipes, right? Right. (laughs) So there's always variations on recipes and that's part of the work, but you try to stay true to your own craft. So, yeah. So another thing that's changed a lot since 2001 is the availability of ingredients and sort of savviness of of, uh, like what stuff is like, I'm sure I I, I didn't look today before this conversation, but I'm sure like you had to explain like 
what soy milk was mm-hmm. or, or, you know, quinoa and where you can get it. Mm-hmm. And so on the one hand, we have this, you know, proliferation of healthy options, kinds of produce, sophistication, like, you know, Whole Foods is now a thing and people have Wegmans and online shopping. And on the other hand, we have all the vegan processed food mm-hmm. that almost almost makes vegan, like it almost makes it redundant. Like you could just eat like everybody else and it's getting harder and harder to even tell the difference. How have you navigated that? Yeah, it's been, I have to say, it's been tricky the last few years because it's been kind of fun, right? To go out and see all the new foods. And I'm a food person. So I like to try things. I want to try things. And I want to be able to say, oh, that's a good product, you know, and I want my kids to have some of that fun food too. Like it's like you say, it's like a double-edged sword, really. Like we have, I don't have to explain what tahini is to anybody anymore. That's wonderful. <laughs> you know, rarely I do. Uh, my mom still says bagan. Um, and it, it's hilarious to me that she still says you're bagan. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it's like for my kids, because uh, they're older now, right? 20, 16 and 12. So when my 16 year old goes out with her friends, and they go out for something to eat, I'm very grateful that she can get something when she's out like that. Usually a restaurant has the Beyond Burger on the menu. Most, mm-hmm. most places do now. Or she can, um, you know, even go to AMW, for instance, and get something they she doesn't often and she, it's not her favorite thing to eat. But I feel very grateful that we have that option. But at the same time, I can go to, we have a vegan store here. It's called Vegan Supply. And holy, I can spend $100 on not very much having, you know, ooh, let's try this and let's try this. So, you know, it's it's nice to have the options, but really you have to stay fairly rooted in the foundation of the whole foods and have those things as, you know, occasions, treats. Um, mm-hmm. It's easy to get carried away with it for sure. Because mm-hmm. like the last two cookbooks I've um, talked about on the podcast was is yours, which is and as, as I'm flipping through the ingredients, it's, you know, it's like beans, mm-hmm. brown rice, bay mm-hmm. leaves, tomato, like tomato paste and mm-hmm. maple syrup are like the most uh, processed things you have. Mm-hmm. And the other one that was uh, Nava Atlas plant powered protein, which is like, here's how you take all these, you know, amazing new fake meats and... Mm and cook around them and make them healthy. And it's, it's, it's oh. interesting that, mm-hmm. you know, that uh, the, the different approach, like you're, you're, you're keeping them out of your, of yeah. your over your work. Yeah. And, you know, primarily because it's not what we eat day to day. I mean, uh, we will order the occasional vegan pizza. Um, I will cook um, guardian uh, mandarin chicken for my youngest sometimes. She loves it. Uh, but day to day, we eat the beans and grains. And my husband despises anything that's too meat-like. He, mm. It really, really turns him off. He um, doesn't like to you know, order out. And if they're, he's out at a work function or something and they have, they go to a restaurant, he doesn't want to order that beyond burger because it's too meat like for him so i don't buy them um and there are a few things i buy that you know the kids like but i don't use them in my daily cooking so yeah it's just not part of 
how I cook. So I just always come back to the beans and grains. And I just think you can make some really cool things with them too, right? It's really fun to take mm-hmm. nuts and seeds and, and grains and beans and turn them into a really delicious burger. And it's way tastier than something that you buy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So today, in preparation for our, for our call, I, I felt like I had to cook. So <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it was tough. It was, it was, it was hard, but I, I do it for my, for my listeners. So I made the, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, Aush or Aush soup. The Aush soup. Mm-hmm. Aush soup, um, which I've got to say, it's, you know, you have a beautiful picture of it. And my picture looked, my, my the soup looked as good when I made it good. as your picture. It's like, nice. That's, that's good. That's always nice. It's uh-huh. not, all, it's not, it's not all like bounce lighting and. <laughs> No, my photographer was true to the, I said, you know, I want it to look like how people will make it, you know, and, and photography is tricky because they do have to get things at the right temperature. Like basil turns off color very quickly, but for the most part. Yeah. And then we also made the, um, was it the, the, the nummy, nummy brownie bites. Ah, so, cause we had to, we had to get something from, you know, the, the dessert the desserts. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say it, re- it reminded me a lot of schmoopy cookies. Okay. You are a fan of the schmoopy cookies. Good. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, tr- I try to go light cause <laughs> they don't, they don't meet all of my life goals. I hear you. Yes. I know. Whenever um, I make, make cookies, my husband says, but they're healthy, aren't they? I'm like, that does. I said, well, healthy is like a very broad term you're using to describe those cookies. <laughs> I was like, have a one or two, not half the batch, right? Well, that's the problem. When you get a cookbook like this, it's got the halo effect on it. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's got Colin Campbell's name right. on the cover. Right. You know, I know of your work. It's, it's plant-based, whole food. And, and I'm like, well, I could eat as much as I want of all of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. It's really great when we can remind ourselves, but it's healthy. Yeah, you know, there might be pumpkin seeds and things in there, but it's still, you know, pretty high calorie if if you eat half a batch of cookies. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so I know so I mentioned the Aush soup because I've never I've never eaten anything um with from an Afghan cuisine mm, before. Mm. Um it was unusual with the with sort of the savory lemon mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. the and the sumac. Um, mm-hmm. I liked it right away. My wife's like, nice. I'm not uh-huh. sure about this, uh-huh. <laughs> uh, but you have a bunch a bunch of um, sort of internationally uh, inspired cuisine. What? How do you how do you go about collecting that? Do you like watch cooking shows or go to restaurants or mm. like I mean like Afghan, Thai, Moroccan, like you're all over the place. Like where, 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 where do those inspirations come from? Um, you know, some of it has been eating at restaurants over the years, but I will say not much at, not too much from restaurants because we don't dine out a lot. That soup was inspired by a restaurant here called Afghan kitchen. And we order in from their restaurant sometime. It's just really, really oily is the only thing. I mean, I, the flavors are amazing, but everything is very, very oily, especially when you haven't been having oil in your food, you really notice it then when people cook with it. And that soup in particular was as well. Um, But a lot of times I used to watch a lot of cooking shows years ago when I first started to kind of explore cuisines and, you know, what flavors uh, are going together, like what spice combinations work for, you know, Indian food or, um, you know, when you're making, like you say, something that's a Thai dish, like what 
flavor elements do you want to go in there? And a lot of times I still do a little bit of digging. Like if I want to um, do a Moroccan recipe, I'll just Google like Moroccan spices and get an idea of sort of the flavors or because sometimes I might feel I'm missing something and I'll do a little search. I'm like, oh, I'm going to try this in the in the dish. So I'll do that kind of thing. But I used to love the cooking shows from years ago that were real cooking shows. Now it's all, you know, competitions. <laughs> um, I used to love the cooking shows years ago from, you know, Food Network Canada and in the U.S. And they were very instructional and used to teach a lot about ingredients themselves. And I found that very helpful. Mm. So who eats all your mistakes? Oh, the family. <laughs> I've learned that if I put guacamole on anything, they'll eat it. <laughs> that always works. <laughs> if it's really bad, it, it doesn't get to the table. If it's really bad, I'm like, oh, God, if it's not fixable, if there's something I could do with it, right? If there's a way I can fix it, I will. And then I'll just chalk it up to, okay, that recipe didn't work, or I really need to restructure it. But um, over time, you get a little better at um, not messing up too much. <laughs> I'll say that. <laughs> so, so what's your process for vetting a, res- a recipe for a cookbook? So I guess it starts with you tasting it, then your family, but other, does it go through other layers? Do you have, uh, you know, fans and editors and other bloggers? Yeah, great question. I do have a group of recipe testers that I've, I've worked with and, you know, they tend to fluctuate a little bit. I get some coming in and some move on with things, but for the last few books, I've had um, an amazing group of people help out with recipe testing. And so I always work through the recipe myself, make sure it's tested several times. And then once they're done, and I feel like they're the way I would blog them, for instance, fairly complete in instructions and ingredients and, and accurate, then I bring them to my group of recipe testers, and they work through them as well. And then they come back with you know, either there was too much salt for me, or maybe I needed a little bit more, or, um, you know, maybe something really handy for me, like saying, hey, my, it didn't work in my blender, my blender was too small or too big for that the batch that you blended with. And so those little things are really helping refining, because I have like a small blender jar on my blend tech, and that's really handy for sauces and dressings. But if you're using a big blender jar, then that doesn't work very well. So that really helps to add those notes to the recipes for people who are, you know, not so sure about the process or the elements. So yeah, uh, I worked through that group. And then even when, like you say, it goes through editing, my editor was making some recipes too. So she didn't have any changes for me though. So (laughs) that was good. (laughs) How do you get people to be honest with you? I I imagine there's there's some pressure for like, Oh, Drina, this was delicious. Yeah. Um, I, I think I test it enough that I feel like I always say to everybody, I don't expect you to like everything because not everyone likes, you know, any kind of dish or ingredient. Like you may not like eggplant or you may not really enjoy, like I don't like sushi. So I'll never enjoy that kind of (laughs) the seaweed in recipes for it, you know, to that degree. Um, But I, I feel like my testers, there's, been times that they've said, Hey, this recipe, it just didn't work for me. And they're honest about it and fair. And I'm like, I want you to say that, like, if you're having trouble with the recipe, tell me, cause this is when to fix it. Right. So, uh, usually they're very kind in their approach. Like 
I tried it. This part didn't work, but the flavor was good, but this needs to be fixed. And then it helps me just refine it. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned, you mentioned about um, like you prepare it, like you're ready to blog it. How do you decide mm. what goes on the blog, what you keep mm. back at a cookbook, like just as a, mm. as a business decision, just so you can make a living. Yeah, that's hard because I want to share everything, right? Yeah. <laughs> like I do. I want when I'm even with the cookbook now, I'm like, I want to put this recipe on my blog. And, and there are some recipes I put on from the book. I put out there so that people can try them and sort of have sample recipes from the book. Uh, but, you know, people have gotten very um, almost entitled out there, too. Right. They think that everything should be out there because that's the world we have now where so much is online. They're like, do I actually have to buy the book to see this recipe? Mm. <laughs> So there is some of that out there. It's uh, I um, I try to with a book um, offer you know a well-rounded set of recipes, and so I even had an ebook with this. It was a promo ebook. You know, you you pre-order the book, you get the promo ebook. That was hard as well, just to, to select which recipes were going to go in the promo ebook and not in the book. I wanted to put everything in the book. Um, I'm not good at that. I'm a Libra. It's hard for me to decide. Yeah. Like, uh, I, I go around with it for way too long. <laughs> uh-huh. But I, I imagine contractually Ben Bella says, hey, don't give away everything because we, we need to make money here. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But they're very also good with um, sharing a number of recipes because they know that that's what if people try one and they love it, that's usually going to encourage them to purchase the book. So, mm-hmm. yeah. So, does, you know, in terms of like, yeah, the book you know, it's some money, but it's just a limb. Mm, what, what mm. else, what else, what are the other limbs of your business that can support you doing this work for us? Yeah, I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm still figuring that out to some degree, but it's, I'm getting better at it. Like for a long time, I didn't view myself as doing this as a, like you say, as a career, I, I felt it was more like a hobby and I would do a lot of work for free. And then I realized I'm just doing what am why am I doing this for free then offering like these posts for companies when um, other people aren't doing that. And that comes to be, you know, an issue of like worthiness as well, which is something that I've had to work on over the years. Uh, you know, just that concept of being worthy of being paid mm. to do that work. Um, So that's part of it. Sometimes I do sponsored posts. I don't do a lot of them because I don't affiliate with a lot of brands. I have to really love a brand and company to affiliate. So Mm -hmm. I do have some affiliate brands that I I work with. And if so, if someone, for instance, buys a blender, I get a little kickback on that. Not a lot, but it it builds over time. Um, I do my eBooks as well. So that helps support my work. And if I ever run a promotion on the eBook, I get a little extra sales with that. And I have ads on my blog, which I would rather not have. And hopefully in time, I can remove them. Mm. (laughs) But right now I need them. It's part of the cost of running the blog and, and paying for my time to put recipes on there and answer questions and be social, right? And be out there for people to interact with. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, so I'm curious, you mentioned earlier about, you know, you met Dr. Barnard at a Whole Foods mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Dr. Campbell wrote the uh, uh, blur, the cover blurb for the book. It's like, for me, meeting these people, uh, it was like, like, you know, like my heroes, mm-hmm. like, actually, I'm curious, like, how, how was it for you to not just, you know, to meet the blogosphere and the, and the culinary people, 
but like at first you 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 weren't that attuned to the vegan you know the plant-based health world mm -hmm. and gradually you become more, more and more aligned with them and you you write in the introduction about reading the china study i think probably 2010 mm -hmm. or something like that mm -hmm. like five years after it came out and like how how has meeting and becoming part of that the health community um influence first of all like you and your in your family but also um your cookbooks and your your cooking yeah i i met like i think some of those people at that summer fest and it was the first time i realized that this was really a big deal like these doctors are really really respected and known in the field dr gregor and uh, Dr. Bernard, and uh, I still haven't met Dr. Campbell. It's kind of on my bucket list, you know, my big dream to meet him. And I haven't met John Robbins. I understand he was one of your um, sort of bucket list people, right? When you were starting your podcast, you really, yeah, really I started the podcast. Yeah, to, so I have <laughs> that was for him, right? Exactly. So that was, you know, it was huge for me to have a Ford from him because that was such a pivotal book for me and Dr. Campbell was kind of like he's sort of like dear in my heart I would love to meet him um I just I have like a lot of reverence for all the work they've done and and continue to do you know how much they are providing for the community and um it's definitely influenced my my family too because I'm creating food in line with the work that's being done do you know what I mean like uh moving from eating certain foods and ingredients and removing oil and, and uh, keeping on a whole foods path for our family. Yeah. Have you had to navigate the politics of that? Cause I, even at Vita Vegan Con, I, I suddenly, I realized that there were mm. a lot of vegan bloggers who are very sort of, um, you know, urban goth ethical vegans who felt like talking about health was just going to turn people off. Mm -hmm. And then the goal was, you know, if, if people are eating, you know, vegan mac and cheese, hot hamburger, deep fried meals, that's better. And, and, and you know, if you say, well, no oil or low oil, that people aren't going to like it as much. Did you did you find mm -hmm. that you had to navigate that and kind of figure yeah. things out? Yeah, I remember that. I actually remember returning from that. Ah, oh, it's interesting you bring that up sort of like a mind rush. I remember returning from that conference and writing a blog post Am I healthy enough? Am I vegan enough? Because it felt like either if you were health on, on the health path to being vegan, you weren't quite vegan enough. And if you were on the ethical side of vegan, you weren't seen as healthy enough. And it was kind of like, why can't we just be okay with, you know, sort of accepting both sides, right? Like you can approach veganism from a health perspective. It doesn't mean that you don't care about the ethics, at all. In fact, it usually means that you're learning about it along the way and you can approach it from an ethical standpoint. And usually you're going to have to care about the health side of it, or it's not going to be sustainable for you. Mm. Right. It, it, there's both, both aspects. Um, I definitely did. I felt like I wasn't sure where I was for a while because my books came out and vegan was always in the title. Uh, you know, the everyday vegan, Viva vegan, let them eat vegan, eat, drink and be vegan. And then my next book was Plant Powered Families and now uh, Kind Kitchen. And I kind of shifted away from not that I don't use the term vegan, I do, but I feel like it has a huge weight for it for a lot of people. And they feel that 
they're afraid almost to step into eating plant-based because they feel like they have to fit this entire mold of eating of what vegan is to them. And that's not necessarily fair when, you know, they might learn about it in a year and, and shift into it in another way. So I wanted to kind of broaden my work to be plant-based. Um, I always say vegan as well, but just to show people that, you know, you can step into this from a health perspective. It doesn't have to be all or nothing. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. It, it's a big one though, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I've, you know, I've heard perfectly reasonable people get very upset yeah. at, at, us, at other people's recipes saying like, you're, you're hurting the movement and I hear it on both sides. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And, yeah. and it's, it's easy to, it's, you know, like we talk about compassion a lot because it's a hard thing to, mm -hmm. to display. Like, you know, if it was easy, we wouldn't have to talk about it so much. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. But to, um, but again, I feel like, you know, the cookbook authors at the, are at the vanguard, so, you know, sort of, you know, the, the, the culinary leaders, people like you and Miyoko and Kathy Hester, mm -hmm. who are really, who are really leading with kindness. Mm -hmm. You're not leading with veganism. You're not leading with health. You're leading with kindness and yeah. veganism and health are both um, manifestations of that. Absolutely. I really like that. Yeah. I really like that. That's absolutely it. It is manifestations of that. And um, if you can approach it in that way, you're going to help people achieve that in, in, in both areas. Yeah. So one, one thing I realized as I was going through the cookbook is at first glance, it like, like some of these recipes seemed more complicated than mm. earlier ones. And I think that's possible. That's possibly true. Like you're saying like, Hey, let's put a little more effort into this, but also I was like, Oh, I can't make that. Cause I don't have like two cups of cooked brown rice already. Oh. <laughs> like I, I, and it seems like you're putting a lot of stock in sort of preparation and batching and yeah. having ingredients. Can you talk a little yeah. bit about that. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and, and that's the thing with these recipes is I open the book talking about uh, prep, like prepping yourself in the kitchen. And I even take it from the step of starting at the grocery store, you know, you have your produce and you come home. And the first thing I do when I come home with a big grocery shop, like lots of produce, is I get everything washed really quickly. So it's ready to use for chopping or snacking. And my dish drainer is often filled with <laughs> a lot of different produce because I just get everything into the sink, give it a quick wash, rinse in, and it's drained. Um, I just, you know, that sort of aspect of the hygiene with produce is important because it can carry a lot of contaminants on the surface, even you know when you're cutting through a melon, for instance, right? It's cutting it into the flesh and there's foodborne illness issues. So anyhow, I help people walk them through that process of like, okay, there's your, your produce now get started with um, having it ready in the fridge. And then also batch cooking key elements. Cause for me, prep of food is so you streamline things by having certain things batch cooked. And it's not a lot of things, but it's sort of like some key elements. Either you have beans ready or you have canned beans. You have potatoes and sweet potatoes pre-baked 
or pre-steamed and in the fridge, brown rice, quinoa, like a few key things. And then not only are they ready for recipes, but they're ready to just pull out for dinner bowls or to pair with a soup or, you know, to throw into a stir fry. Like it just makes your meal prep almost like without too much thought. It's like, what's in my fridge? Oh, I do have brown rice. I do have quinoa. I do have sweet potatoes. I can make this, this, this. So it does look a little peculiar. I know what you're saying when you flip the recipes and it's like, oh, there's a half cup of sweet potato in this recipe and a cup of potato in this recipe. Why? (laughs) But it's that use of the batched cooked ingredients, but also I'm using those ingredients to provide texture where I'm re- if I'm removing oil and also if I'm trying to make nut-free recipes, sometimes those elements are used for texture to, you know, help with that recipe or flavor or color. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a very efficient mode of, of operating, you know, like when I write an article, if I, if I have to go from like nothing to finished article in a day, it's much harder than if I say, okay, today I'm going to spend 10 minutes brainstorming a topic. Tomorrow, I'm going to do a little research. The day after that, I'm going to write an outline. And the fourth day, I'm going to write it. Mm-hmm. Like it takes mm-hmm. a lot less time and mental energy than mm-hmm. if I were to just do all those things in, in, in one step. Yeah. Um, so just, you know, like, yeah, having, having this stuff on hand. Like, you, I mean, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll out myself. There are plenty of days I'll open the fridge and go, wow, look at all those condiments. I've got condiments <laughs> and I've got, I've got uncooked produce. Right. That seems like a lot of work. Is there a, <laughs> is there something frozen I can just. Right. You know? And yeah. Um, so it's a, yeah, it's a great discipline. Yeah. And it just becomes like another, another part of your life. Like it just becomes kind of like getting dressed in a way or brushing your teeth, like these things that food is very much diet is very much a habit. Like you get into habits with food. And so if you know, if you can batch prep a bunch of sweet potatoes every five or six days, or, you know, depending on how much you eat them or how big your family is, but also, you know, we had teenagers. And so for them making meals, it's, they would be very much more at a loss as well if they couldn't reach in and grab those elements. So like my daughter, Bridget, who's 16, she makes her lunches for school. And I always see her pulling out quinoa, cooked sweet potatoes, tofu that I've marinated and and pre-baked and it's in the fridge. So like for them to eat healthy and not always reach for those processed things, it's having those things there for them too. Wow. You just blew my mind with the idea that you can marinate and pre-baked tofu and not eat it right away. (laughs) You make a lot of it. That's the trick. (laughs) It doesn't last long in this house either. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, like we, we do ours, like in, you know, we got an air fryer, we Mm -hmm. do it in the air fryer. I'm wondering how all, you know, how your cooking has shifted with all the appliances, Mm. you know, instant pot air fryer. Mm. I don't know what the latest and greatest is, but do you use those a lot Mm. or rely on them? There are so many. I have a new one that I'm trying out soon. It's almost like a robot. I'm really like blown away by this one that I'm going to be seeing in a couple of weeks, um, which comes with like a little hub to almost work your way through the recipe. Um, It's almost what I, the thing is with me, when I'm developing recipes, I want to develop them for anybody and everybody, right? So not everyone has an air fryer. Not everyone has an instant pot. I do have some instant pot recipes in the cookbook, but for some of them, I also offer the stovetop method so that people can do either or. I use the instant pot 
fairly often, not all the time. I still am pretty like old school. I love the stove and the, and the oven. I use them a lot and I use my, um, my Breville smart oven. I use that a lot because it's so efficient at heating up and reheating food. I don't have a microwave. I reheat food in that a lot. And I do have the air fryer function, but I don't use it as much as just the good old oven component of it. Uh, it's yeah, I'm a little old school with it, but I do use the instant pot and I wouldn't be without like my food processor and blender. They're, they're like my fourth and fifth children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we have, we have the Breville smart oven too. I, I love the air fryer. It's, it, it sounds yeah. like it's like an airplane on the tarmac getting ready right. to take off. Right. Right. What do you do in it a lot? What veggies or for air frying? Um, well, so like, you know, marinated tofu. Mm -hmm. And I find the trick is to preheat the the rack so the tofu doesn't stick to it. Right. Um, I'll also just take a bag of frozen cauliflower or broccoli mm -hmm. and throw that in air fry. Mm -hmm. and like, you know, after eight minutes, it starts getting, you know, the very, very little tips start to blacken and then you pull okay. it out and it's nice and crunchy. Tasty. Yeah. Okay. Um, those are the, and then. I don't do some, I, I was doing a lot of like potato, like fries and things. Mm -hmm. um, haven't done so much of that lately. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I enjoy when you have potatoes already like steamed or cooked, and then you slice them and put them on the air fryer after mm -hmm. that, like second, you know, it's got that double cooking or double baking quality. Uh, I do enjoy potatoes that way on the air fryer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the to the close. So I want to make sure we get people excited about the cookbook so they can go go get it. First of all, it is it's it's beautiful and it's color coded. Mm -hmm. that if, if you're looking at the spine, you can kind of see the different sections because there's like a, a a quarter inch of of uh, vertical color on the side of of, of every right uh, of, of both pages. Um, so what are, what are some of the recipes, you know, maybe three or four that you're like mm. really proud of and excited to share? Oh, that's a biggie, uh, but I love it. <laughs> um, there's a nut free cheesecake in the book and I created that one very much for a tester of mine whose, uh, son has extreme allergies and she cannot use nuts and she, uh, certain seed she also can't use. And I was like, I'm making this oil-free nut-free cheesecake for you. I could have called it Sarah's cheesecake, but it's called mythical cheesecake because it's almost like a unicorn. <laughs> uh -huh. You know, it's like, how do you make a cheesecake without refined cream, you know, vegan cream cheese or without cashews? Um, there is a little sweet potato in there, which seems to be the magical ingredient in most of my recipes. And uh, I love that one. And I have a holiday section in this book, which is kind of fun because people have always asked, you know, what do you serve at Christmas or what do you serve at Thanksgiving? And I wanted to offer up really a fairly well-rounded menu with gravy and sides and a main and dessert options. I have a lot of oil-free dressings in the book. The Buddha dressing has been really popular already. People are loving that one. And um, I really love the curried carrot lentil soup. It's one of my favorites to make. It's really easy, easy. Um, the sweet potato lentil meatloaf, people are loving that one as well. Um, and then I did a version of my homestyle chocolate chip cookies that were in Viva La Vegan, and I wanted to make those oil-free, and I have those in the book. Um, so that's kind of like a... A, a cool one for me too. Right, let me look for those. Uh, They're called honest, honest chocolate chip cookies. 
Okay, Applecrest, Heavenly Baba, Custard. Uh, oh, the Schmoofy cookies are back. Schmoofy cookies are back. Yeah, they weren't in a book. They were just on my blog before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Honest chocolate chip cookies. Okay, so I see in the chocolate chip cookies, you've got something called coconut cream and coconut butter. What, what, yeah. what, are, the, what are those? How, and yeah. how are they different from like, you know, coconut oil or? Yeah, that's a good question. And people, you know, not everyone um, wants to make the recipes with the coconut products, which I totally understand because if you are following a, a reversal diet, a disease reversal diet, coconut is very much out of your um, diet because it's mm. just higher in fat. Um, so coconut oil is the oil extracted from the coconut kind of like if you, I liken it to almonds and almond butter or peanuts and peanut butter and peanut oil. So coconut and coconut butter is like making peanut butter from peanuts. You make coconut butter from coconut. It's, it's the whole coconut that's pureed. Okay. So it's a whole foods product, but it is high in calories and fat for people who are watching that. And then coconut cream is when you use a can of coconut milk and the, and the cream rises to the top. And so you, you take that from the coconut milk, um, from the coconut can to make the cookies. And you could really use milk, just regular plant milk in that recipe too. But the coconut butter is what offers that whole foods fat for the cookies. Um, you, it's really tricky to make cookies without whole foods fat. Uh, you're making muffins if you make cookies without whole foods fat. Uh -huh. <laughs> they just turn out to be like muffins, which there's some really good muffins in the book too. I just made the Hope's blueberry muffins. I just made a double batch of those this morning because uh, there are daughters, our youngest, she's, um, she's 12. And those are her favorite. I made some of those today. Gotcha. gotcha. So one more question, the uh, no butter, no chicken. Uh, is that just like butter chicken or was that, was that inspired by uh, Bob Marley? Oh, <laughs> no. Yeah. It's like butter chicken. It's not inspired by Bob Marley. Um, okay. Yeah. No, I it was after a veg event. I did actually one of my, um, one of the gals that was helping out uh, with my demo there and then became a friend and a recipe tester told me she made this version of butter chicken. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to create a recipe. Like, you know, you've kind of inspired me and that's, that's the recipe I created. And that one's been really popular too. It's really flavorful. And I don't use, you know, like a faux meat. I use chickpeas because I can, and they're great. <laughs> awesome. Looks, looks great. It's, it's on the list. Good. Uh, good. So people want to follow you on, on the internet and social, where do they go? Yeah, well, you can go to my site and then all of my handles are there. You can link through to, you know, Instagram or Facebook. But my site is drinaburton.com, uh, D-R-E-E-N-A, burton.com. And then they can find all of my um, YouTube. I'm on all of that, all of that stuff, like everyone else, YouTube, mm -hmm. Instagram, Facebook, <laughs> on gotcha. there. So, so is your kitchen full of like lights and? No, no, I, I just present it as who I am. This is my kitchen. I, I do my YouTube. I, I did one yesterday. I've been doing them every Sunday. I've been trying to get into the routine of scheduling a YouTube time. I call it tea time with Drina. And uh, I have been doing it the last few Sundays at like 1 p.m. Pacific time on Sundays. And uh, I just now I just go to my kitchen as it is. And I'm not very professional with lights and stuff. I just show up. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So so do you consider yourself a teacher now? In a way, you know, it's, um, it's interesting because uh, I had someone say that to me uh, that, you know, you're a teacher. And I'm like, 
what? But in a way, because I, when I'm on those videos and people are asking questions, I feel like, wow, I'm, these things that seem kind of um, obvious to me in a way, like seem just like people know them, they don't, but you accept that for yourself. When you've been doing something for a while, you ex- sort of start to understand it in a way that you think other people get it too. Do you know what I mean? So uh, I, when I yeah. realized when I'm doing a recipe and showing a shortcut, that that's a really big revelation for some people. So in a way, I guess, yeah. <laughs> Has that changed how you write at all? Kind of. Um, I've always, my recipes have always had like notes in them. And that's one thing that people have remarked about sort of, I think my recipes from the beginning that like, Oh, look, she adds all these like extra notes on the sidebars, which my, you know, publishers have always loved how much, (laughs) how much text I try to shove into one recipe. (laughs) They're like, Oh my gosh, we need white space. But, (laughs) but I like to almost feel like I'm there offering suggestions or a little extra clarity on things in the recipe. So I, I add notes wherever I can in recipes. And that's been something I've done right from book one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I have one more question. I, I was kind of debating whether to ask just from a sort of a emotional safety perspective, oh. but I know you, you wrote about in the introduction mm-hmm. about some really hard life situations when you were young, some tragedies, and then also Mm -hmm. about dieting and being Mm -hmm. overweight. Mm -hmm. And like, you've been you've been at this for, you know, 20 years now. And on, you know, on the cover, there's this beautiful picture of you in a sleepless dress. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm curious about like, your, you know, you and your and sort of body image as a representative, Mm -hmm. like, do you think Mm -hmm. about that? And you know, you're 20 years older than when you had your first cookbook, like, I'm just, I'm just curious, like, how, how that run through your mind? Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, um, when I was doing the photos for that book, that was, I felt very self conscious in many ways. I was like, Oh, my gosh, I'm 50. I'm in this arena with a lot of people now who are like, 20 and 30, like it feels like a big deal to, you know, represent this healthy image, right, of being vegan. But at the same time, um, I feel like I'm at a healthier place than I was many years ago as well. And, uh, you know, like you said, uh, it, it was a long, you know, sort of hard journey. And in my early years, I did not have like an easy childhood and um, a lot of trauma there with family um, deaths and um, dieting and all of that. And that was the culture then too, right? We dieted. That was, that was what we did in those days. And my mother did. Um, So definitely. And I was went through a time with being online. I remember first being online and uh, I would get a lot of comments or, you know, not maybe not a lot, but enough that it's stuck in my head, right? A lot may be three or two, but they feel like a lot when it's something very negative. People saying, oh, look, yay, another skinny vegan, or um, she looks like she's um, um, from um, an Auschwitz uh, camp or something, or uh, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, another flat chested vegan, like things like that, that really impact your psyche, like, wow, um, that eating vegan, you know, there's that whole notion of, well, 
you have to look a certain way. Well, you don't, but if you're eating healthy, you're probably going to be leaner. Um, but my body type is very long and lanky. Like that is my body type too, right? If I, if I were to put on 20 pounds, I would still have very long arms <laughs> and very small wrists. That's kind of my body shape. So I've had to, you know, accept that about myself, but that was hard early on. And I had those comments really were like big bruises to me. Um, because especially when you've already been fairly sensitized to, um, body image, and then um, you think you you look good and you feel good, and people are then shaming you in the opposite direction direction, saying you're too skinny. It's mm. it's not easy. Yeah. Yeah, I'm also imagining, you know, so you know, we have a culture in which like the ideal age is probably like yeah, eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, and and all you know, all of us are are getting older, and of course, there's there's a way in which we can we still have all that stuff inside us, and mm -hmm. we can look and say, well, I wish. You know, I wish I looked like I looked 40 mm -hmm. years ago, 35 years ago. But also there's this sense like like I know Miyoko just turned 60 and mm. she had some pictures and like, damn, something's working. Right. Like, like there's something to be said for like, who am I going to trust about how to live a healthy life and, and look good? A 24 year old who could live on like, yeah. you know, espresso and and Kit Kats and pizza and Coke. Right. Right. Or like, like, you know, you've at 50, you've kind of earned it, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, good point. I mean, I remember when my, um, my husband's parents were reading the Dean Ornish book, and he's he talks about in that book, how you can pretty much do anything to your body in before you're 20. And it your body's resilient, right? Um, you can eat whatever you want, and not a whole lot shows up. But when you get past your thirties and into your forties that, you know, this is obviously when things, <laughs> your body does not accept those, those damages really anymore. So, yeah, I mean, you're kind of showing what the lifestyle is. I mean, like I'll be 51 next week and um, thank you. And uh, yeah, so it's like you're helping people see that 51 doesn't have to be or 60 doesn't have to be like with Miyoko, the image that you thought it was when you were 20, right? When you would see people and feel like, oh, no, they're they're aging and they're not healthy or they're not active or their bodies are, you know, breaking down. Um, it doesn't have to be that image anymore. It doesn't have to be that way. Right. I think also, you know, for, for me, the, some of the vanity has softened a little mm -hmm. bit and that like, okay, you know, if I'm healthy, Mm -hmm. like like healthy is beautiful mm -hmm. <laughs> at, at our age and older yeah <laughs> as opposed to like do, do i have the perfect jawline and right you know, you know i don't know if you know about this but about me but i'm bald <laughs> really <laughs> like, and it's it's semi by choice like i do shave but you know if i didn't it would it would be like the world's most obvious comb over or or just yeah. you know like coming to terms with that being okay. Yeah. And really, you know, like, I think it's, it's, it's complicated, especially like, you know, my, my physical appearance isn't part of my brand. Right. Um, it in is the for same a lot way, of people. In the yeah. same way it is for cookbook authors and mm -hmm. other personalities. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I think, you know, you do it strategically to some degree. Yeah. And for women, there's more pressure, right? Women generally have much more pressure for that appearance than men 
And um, it, it can carry a lot of weight for sure. But, you know, you mentioned, you know, even for you, like you, you glow, right? You can see that your, your skin and your eyes are glowing and that comes through, right? That, that just comes through with how you eat. So even as we age, yeah, you know, the gray hairs come in, you get some wrinkles, things like that, but you still have a glow mm. and that comes through. I feel like I see that in people very much as they're aging, the difference. Yeah. It's funny. We talk about the difference between like, you know, men and women. It's mm. like when, when I am podcasting with a man and he wants to know if we're doing a video too, it's because he wants to know if he should put on a shirt. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and for a woman, it's like, do I have to spend an hour? Right. You know, in front of the mirror. Right. Put on a little lipstick, some blush. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. There's, you know, it's, it's not easy because especially in the health, you know, in this arena um, of health and wellness, that is part of it, right? People want to see, like, they want to see, well, what do you, what do you look like if you're eating this way? And there's a lot associated to weight loss as well. But for me, uh, you know, this time of life as well is different for women. You know, this is the stage of menopause for women. And generally that means, you know, women tend to put on a bit of weight this time of life. So this is something different for me to navigate as well. It's like, well, my body's shifting this time of life, but I actually feel healthier now than I did say 20 years ago mm. when I was much harder on myself and I was having babies and trying to resume like my normal weight and just kind of pushing my body a lot, a lot. So there's, that's a whole other, a whole other scope of, of discussion. I know, but um, it's definitely, in, uh, I'm glad you brought it up because it's, it's, it's definitely present in our arena. I think when we're talking about wellness and health. So I have an idea for you. You should write the, the vegan menopause cookbook, which, which involves <laughs> spending a lot of time with, in front of an open fridge. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And no cooking. Uh, only using the instant pot. So you don't have to heat up your kitchen with the stove <laughs> and oven. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I, I expect I expect the acknowledgement when that comes out. Okay, we'll do. <laughs> so, Darina, it's been such a pleasure reconnecting with you. Thank you so much for, for doing this amazing cookbook and for taking the time today. Oh, no, my gosh. Thank you. Uh, really fun discussion. And, um, you know, I'm glad you started the podcast years ago to interview John Robbins. <laughs> and you've yeah, interviewed me too. so many people along the way. Thank you. I know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly a runaway train at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I should get John back on, see what he's up to. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> cool. Well, th thanks again. Um, be well. And I hope our paths cross again soon. I'm sure they will. Thank you very much, Howie. Take care. Bye. All right. I hope you enjoyed that. I hope that was fun. I hope that was a little bit of a break from some of the weightier issues of the day. If you want to check out the show notes for today's episode, they're at plantyourself.com slash 487. Wow, we're really close to 500. One more, one more uh, TV season, right? 13 more episodes and we're at magical 500. If anyone has uh, bright ideas about who I should get for the 500th episode guest, uh, you could let me know. Um, you can just do that on the Plant Yourself Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash plant yourself. Um, otherwise, I'll just I'll think about it and surprise you. Uh, let's see what else is going on. Um, I haven't done much gardening. I kind of came down with a cold. 
Um, and it's the weird thing about a cold these days is it's like an excuse to do nothing and go nowhere because nobody wants to be around anyone who's coughing or sneezing or has a runny nose right now. So I've really taken it very easy. I played a couple hours of Ultimate on Saturday and not much since then. I'm recording this on Tuesday afternoon. So I really have taken it quite easy, just little walks and not even um, pouring the buckets of ice water over my head right now, just feeling like hot showers are the ticket, uh, making lots of soup. I made, um, in fact, one of the recipes from Drina's Kind Kitchen, which is called No Chicken, No Noodle, No Chicken, which apparently is not a reference to a Bob Marley song, but simply the fact that it's chicken noodle soup without... No, it's not what it's called. That's not what it's called. I'm getting confused because we talked about no butter, no chicken. So this one could be called No Noodle, No Chicken, but it did have noodles. I'm babbling and rambling. And if I had more energy, I would go and do a retake, but I don't. So you're just going to have to listen to this. Um, So that's movement news, garden news. Almost nothing's been going on. Um, We've gotten some a couple of figs. I actually ate a fig from our from our um, fig bush. You can hardly call it a fig tree yet, but um, that was more than uh, that. That fig tree was more than a pyrrhic fig tree because we finally got a fig. And so next year is going to be even better. All right. With that, I think I'm going to wrap up the live stuff and we will go to my pre-recorded thanks. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Ridenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willridenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Melissa Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Tina Scharf, Tina Ahern, Jen Filkonofsky, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Kelly Cameron, Janet Selby, Claire Adams, Tom Franzet, Jeanette Benham, Gila Sert, David Donahue, Blair Cyborg, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesner, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Val Lineman, Nick Harper, Bandana Chawley, Molly Levine, The Inscrutable, Harry R., Susan Laverty, The Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Scharf, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Coppel, Julian Watkins, Breed O'Connell, Sharon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olikoski of Plant Power for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Morani, Karen and Joe Crabtree, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazelton, Peter W. Evans, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Emily Iconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Picorni, Stephen Leenan, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Kartz, Deanne Bishop, Billbury Elf, Marjorie Lewis, Trisha Adams, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarit Hagen, Tracy Gulledge, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Paranganchi. Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Edible Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, Sarah Johnson, Catherine Floyd, for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.